Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. The idea that it, you're going to be extinguished when you when you finally realize that that is the most factual fact about life, then you you think, well, that wasn't very long. <laughs> you know, it seems like it's going to last forever when you're when you're a kid. But then you start to realize it's not, it's it's shorter. So if it's not going to last that long, I think it would be a good idea to feel good about things as much as you can. That was Alan Alda. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. We are here. We are back. This is Talk Easy a podcast I host every single Sunday. If this is your first time, welcome. If you've listened to many of these, welcome back. It's a series of long-form interviews with artists I admire. It's pretty much that simple. People have asked, what is your show about? And I can never really give anything better than, uh, look, it's an hour uh, of a conversation where I hope at the end of it you know people better than you do than when you entered the interview. And that was not a great sentence, and I realize that, but let's move forward. Um, this week on the show is Alan Alda. He doesn't need an introduction. I don't want to give him an introduction. You know who he is and where he is from. The only thing I want to mention is that he has his own podcast uh, now out on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. It is called Clear and Vivid. It's a series in which Alda has very spirited conversations with people who know how hard it is and yet how good it feels 
to really connect with other people, whether it's one person, an audience, or a whole country. I like to believe that's a little bit what happens on this show that I host every week, but uh, you should also check out Alda's podcast. It is really fun. Um, I listened to his Judge Judy episode. He had Judge Judy on, and that was great. Imagine Judge Judy and Alan Alda shooting the shit for an hour. Um, It's really, really fun. I want to thank Alan Alda and everyone on his team who made this episode possible. Um, This is a huge, huge honor to uh, speak with with Alan. Never thought this one would happen. Two weeks in a row, Rob Reiner and Alan Alda didn't think we'd come to this point in the show. But hey, uh, maybe it's a good sign. Lastly, it is 12.42 a.m. on uh, Sunday morning, Saturday night here in Chicago. I'm visiting family. Um, If you're wondering when I do these intros, it's not always this late, but sometimes it's this late. And the uh, wonderful, late, great Jonathan Gold has passed. And I um, um, I just want to say, you know, (laughs) <laughs> not that he could hear this or anything like that, but um, to his wife and to his family and to Jonathan himself, uh, thank you for all that you did and the joy you put into your criticism, the humanity and empathy in which you approached your writing and the people you were reviewing. Uh, a lot of critics could take a lesson in that. And, um, your work will live on for, for, for years and decades to come. And if the world is just in any way, and I'm not entirely sure it is, there is another young Jonathan Gold in the wings. Of course, no one will ever be like you. But uh, thank you for everything. And thank you for writing. And thank you for taking us on the ride with you. Anyway, um... This episode was a dream come true for me, and uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did uh, doing it. So, finally, here is Alan Alda. You know, I've done a whole bunch of research for today and there's uh, I think about 7,000 different places to start but something I, I stumbled upon that I'm fascinated by is that you said uh, I think as recently as last year that I don't think we're really listening unless we're willing to be changed by the other person yeah that's kind of a radical idea I came up with I think about 10 years ago, maybe 15. And I know it's radical. I know it I know it sounds ludicrous. Why would we want to be changed by somebody else, especially if they are saying things we strongly and deeply don't agree with. But unless we I have to make it more personal. Unless I open myself up to the other person when they're talking to me and really let them in and be open and vulnerable. I don't have a moat around me. And I know, so you can only get in if you come in with something I already agree with. If I let you in 
with an opposing idea and consider it with the same respect I have for my own ideas, I'm liable to be changed in some way by that. And I have to be willing to do that. Otherwise, I don't think I'm listening. Well, I think that's the heart. You asked me what this show is about, and I think that's pretty much the heart of it. So I want to start um, in Manhattan, 33rd Street and 3rd Avenue. <laughs> that's where I started. <laughs> yeah, I, oddly enough, I'm, I'm picking a date out of the hat, and that's what came out. Um, <laughs> you strike me as someone who has a pretty strong memory. What is your earliest uh, memory of childhood? My very earliest set of memories are in the burlesque theater, standing in the wings, watching my father and burlesque comics and chorus girls and strippers up in the strippers, uh, the the chorus girls. I was never up in the strippers' dressing rooms. I was always up in the chorus girls' dressing rooms. They were very motherly to me. What What do you think, growing up in the wings of burlesque and and really in the heart of entertainment, what do you think that does to a kid at that age? Well, it makes you think that you're in a privileged privileged class, that the rest of the people in the world are civilians who are damaged by not having the life you have, traveling from town (laughs) to town, putting on shows, making people laugh, drinking and gambling in the train all night on the way to the next town. Not that I drank and gambled, but I that was my life. I saw it, and I i was part of the, the joke-making even at an early, early age. And you think that that's going to be your life forever. <laughs> well, at some point, it's not your life forever. When do you feel like you had your you started your own life when did you feel like you had autonomy for the first time well in a way it did become my life because i i became an actor and a writer and a lot of people in those companies were writers too they would write these hokey burlesque sketches but they were creative and they were improvisers they would so half their or some part of their performance would be improvised along with what was traditional. There was a there were black books of typewritten sketches that, when they were piled on a table, they were almost a yard high, mm. and that was the uh, that was the foundation of most burlesque shows. That these sketches were passed from one person to another. I, there was no. I I was never aware of anybody saying I wrote that sketch and you stole it from me. Mm-hmm. Seems like everybody did handful of nickels. Everybody did the crazy house. Mm. Everybody did slowly. I turn. And then when Abbott and Costello got famous after they left burlesque, they continued to do those sketches, and everybody thought of them as Abbott and Costello sketches, mm. like uh, who's on first. But they weren't. They belonged to everybody, as far as I know. I don't know who wrote them, though. Well, you know, it's funny because comedy nowadays, uh, people claim territory on it. But I was watching The Four Seasons this morning. Oh. And it's the first film you directed. You're in it. And there is a bit on the boat. I, I'm trying to think. Like, at the at the top of the boat. And I think you're... you're not You're not 
putting your sail up, but something's happening where you say, keep going, keep going, keep going, and then it falls off and clearly breaks. And it's, to me, beat to beat, one of the early jokes in Bananas, when the car is going backwards and he says, keep going, keep going, keep going, okay, great, and then they, by the time he says, you know, stop, they've crashed into the car. Right. And so the point of this is that it feels like comedy has a long history and oftentimes you know our comedy is an amalgamation of the things we've consumed yeah well that's a fancy way of saying i stole the joke which i did <laughs> i just i thought i loved the joke and i just stole it but it wasn't two cars it was on a boat so of course it's entirely different i'm entirely qualified to steal the joke I apologize to Woody <laughs> Allen for stealing his joke. At least I stole it after his movie came out. He he never shows actors the script of a movie he's about to shoot because the jokes get passed around and they wind up in other movies before they wind up in his or before his comes out. <laughs> so I did him this incredible honor of stealing the joke after the movie came out. Are you the only person who ever caught that, by the way? Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> Alan, I'm so sorry that this had to happen in 2018, um, Why? 40 no, years they, removed. They no, they can't put you in jail. It's the, what, do you, <laughs> the, what do you call that when they can't put you in jail? Statute um, of limitations. Yes, it's past the statute of limitations. Right. I'm not going to comedy jail for that. You know, I think uh, if you were going to go to comedy jail, you would have already been there by now. So I think no, you're that's fine. the only thing I ever stole. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, you got married in 1957. I know you were in the army uh, a little bit before that. You described the time after being married as, I think, a difficult time because you were trying to be an actor and you were trying to break into the industry. And uh, if I'm characterizing this incorrectly, please stop me. But I'm curious, in that time when you're trying to really find your feet, your footing, how do you manage to not be despondent, not, not to be undeterred and, and, keep, and to keep going? I don't know. I, I think about that once in a while, and I wonder how I had the crazy belief that I would make a living doing this. And that's all I ever expected was to make a living. I didn't, I didn't especially want to be a star. I didn't want to be famous. I, want, I, had, I, I, I worked out what I wanted in my early 20s. I had, I had kind of serious ambitions. And I wanted three things. I wanted to be able to act in material that I respected with actors that I respected and admired in front of an audience that would get it. Mm. And it didn't matter to me where that was. And for a while, I, when, I, when I was able to, when I was asked to go to the Cleveland Playhouse, I think I would have been happy for an audience like that forever if I was doing things I cared about but I, w I wasn't doing many things that I cared about so I went back to New York where I was able to do nothing that I cared about because I couldn't get, couldn't get work you know. 
was it at all difficult to fully understand your ambition? And, you know, it sounds like you had very clear objectives. Well, I never, I never had a plan. A lot of people have five-year plans, and I always think Russia and China had a five-year plan every year, and it never worked. <laughs> life, life hands you your plan. So I was more of an improviser. Whatever I was handed, whatever was in front of me, I made the most of it. And by making the most of what was in front of me, I, I managed to cl- climb a ladder, and it took a while. But I, I did have that strange belief that everything was going to work out okay, even though I had nine years of hardly working at all, um, at least in, you know, in my chosen profession. I, had, I worked as a doorman and a cab driver and one night as a waiter. Where do you think that belief in yourself that it was going to work out, where do you think that came from? I don't know. It might have come from my mother, who unfortunately was psychotic. She was schizophrenic and paranoid and always told me that I could do anything, that I'd, whatever I wanted to do, I'd be successful at it. Mm. And I believed her. I mean, she, she wasn't what I thought of as what a mother should be and probably wasn't like most mothers because she... She had an altered view of reality. She saw the devil. She heard voices. Hmm. I don't think she heard voices. She had more of a visual hallucinations. And uh, she was extremely paranoid, kept telling me I was trying to kill her. Um, Were you? No, but uh, it starts to get to you after a while if they, if they tell you that enough. But that didn't impress me as being a motherly thing to do. But the fact was she really did love me. And in her own way, was very, very supportive of me and probably gave me uh, some self-confidence I might not have otherwise had. But I always had a lot of confidence. Mm. You know, you've, you've talked about MASH a thousand times at this point. So I don't want to ask the same things over and over. Well, this will be fun to see if you can ask something different. Well, I, here, here's what I, I want to know is that um, it's 2018 now, and the show has grown into something almost mythological. And I'm I'm wondering today in this moment, you know, it's what uh, almost four o'clock in New York over there. How do you feel about the show? What do you What do you make of it these days? Well, when it was three o'clock, I was very proud of the show. Now mm-hmm. at four o'clock. I feel even better about this show. I don't know what it is. There's something about four <laughs> o'clock just brings that out. <laughs> it ages I, better. How do I feel about this show? I I didn't know when we were doing it how popular it was and what an effect it was having on people. Over the 35 years since we ended the show, I've so many people have said to me, just, I think... Uh, this morning or yesterday, somebody said to me what I've heard hundreds of times, that they bonded with their parent because they watched the show either every day together or every week together, depending on when it was on. And a lot of women said that they, their fathers never talked about the wartime experience until they watched the show and then talked about it with them and cried. 
and that I had no idea that that was having that effect, that the show was having that effect on people when we were doing it. There was no way to know that. Mm. So it's come in waves for me, the, uh, the impact the show had up until I started hearing those things. I was just proud that we had done some really good work, some not so good, some that I, at the time, we all said, oh, we've got to get past that. <laughs> when we were doing the show early, I think in the first season, there was a show where we played a prank on the Frank Burns character and painted his Jeep with gold paint because he was trying to find gold or something. It was a preposterous premise and a preposterous joke. And we said from then on, what is this in this script? Is this another gold Jeep? And we, you know, it became a catchphrase for us. Because the, we did one or two things that we thought were beneath the aspirations of the show. It was okay to be silly, but within the realm of plausibility, I think. Mm. Maybe we can take a page from her diary. And I'd like to start right now. And let a little of what I feel show through the cracks, through the, the wise cracks. To all the people here who I've sweated with and endured with, you're very important to me. And I hope I do a better job of letting you know it. to those closest to me who, who, who mean so much to me. Colonel Potter. Father Mulcahy. Klinger. Margaret. Charles. And Beach. I love every one of you. Were you hard on yourself uh, in the beginning in your acting career? I can't remember. I might have been. I don't know. Mm. And how about now? No. I, I guess one sign that I might have, I was very uh, concerned and I wanted to, you know, is I thought the way to be better in a movie was to go see the rushes at the end of the day and correct Mm. things that I was doing wrong. And I think unless you really experience it doing that, it just tends to make you self-conscious. Right. And the, the more experienced I got, the less I wanted to do it. I, I never look at rushes now, even if I'm invited to. One time making a movie in Mexico, I was not invited, and I really wanted to see the rushes. So I crawled up into the attic of the room next to where they were showing the rushes, and I watched them through a hole in the wall. <laughs> and what did you find? And I saw myself giving a not very good performance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that actually, I, I wanted to ask this. I, I didn't write this one down, so now I am just responding to you, Alan. This is fantastic. I already feel excited. Great. Um, what is the worst performance you've given? I don't know. Early on, I gave one that I didn't think was terrible. But a good friend who was an experienced actor said, 
I, I saw the show, and I don't think it will kill your career. <laughs> so that probably was not a good performance. That's good to hear. You know, my my earliest um, interaction with your work is not MASH at all, but um, it was as a teenager uh, watching Crimes and Misdemeanors. Oh, I love that movie. And what makes New York such a funny place is that there's so much tension and pain and misery and craziness here. And they got that's the first part of comedy. But see, you got to get some distance from it. You know what I mean? That the main, the thing to remember about comedy is if it's if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. So you got to get back from the pain. You see what I mean? But the, the uh, like they said, they asked me up in uh, uh, at Harvard. A bunch of kids asked me, what, "What's comedy?" So I said, and then this this is part of what I'm trying to say about getting back from. It. They, I, I said, "Comedy is tragedy plus time." Tragedy plus time. See, when the night Lincoln was shot, you couldn't joke about it. You couldn't make a joke about that. He just couldn't do it. Now time has gone by, and now it's fair game. Is that, um, I mean, what do you recall about making that film? Because it, it is a favorite of mine. It was then and it is now. I think it's Woody's best movie and one of the best movies that we've made in America. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant movie on many levels. And it's one of the few pieces of writing that I've ever seen that explores the idea that people who do really bad things don't necessarily pay for them, even internally. Mm. We like to believe that if the cops don't get you, that God will get you, or your own conscience will make you unhappy the rest of your life. And in this movie faces the fact, and I think it is a fact, that there are people who get away with murder and it doesn't bother them. And it's a stark fact that takes away some of the sentimentality of our hope to do the right thing. you got to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because you'll suffer from doing the bad thing. Mm. The only other place I saw... That theme explored was in the book of Job, mm. where Job is out in the desert with separating sores, and he says there are women crying in the desert, and there are other people who have all their cattle and their riches, and they they did wrong. I, I did no wrong, and well, look at me. You know, I don't think in, in that film, the character that Martin Landau was playing— by the end, I, I don't believe that he is going to continue his life without at least a sense of guilt. I don't. No, I, I don't. I, 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 that's I, not I, what you I may be right, but I, I I'd have to look at the movie again to look for a clue of that. I I think you may be imposing that on your wish that bad bad behavior gets punished. Mm. You know, you think of to think of all the dictators in the world who die rich. I mean, Saddam Hussein, if he wasn't caught in that hole, would would be perfectly happy to keep doing what he did. Huh. I'm imagining. I never met the guy, so I don't know. <laughs> do you think we're just taught that at an early age that if something bad, if you do something bad, there will be punishment? That there is a clear cause and effect. I, well, I, it's sort of in the it's part of our culture. A lot of people assume it's true. There's, a, I think, a built-in desire to see a bad behavior punished. There's um, 
scientist in Switzerland, whose name I forget right now, who does studies on the uh, on an fMRI, a functional MRI machine, and he sees that there's activity in the reward centers of the brain when someone is punished for an infraction or a supposed infraction. Mm. And that, that to me explains a lot. If we, if, we get, if we get happy from other people's punishment, maybe that is part of what explains capital punishment and the penal system. Mm. There are so many people in jail who are not there in a way where that the punishment is fitting the crime. But the more we can say three strikes and you're out, the, the, the bigger a shot of dopamine we may be getting. It's not rational, you know. What's also not rational is that, especially in, in Hollywood, the general public, there is a joy that they have when they see someone famous, um, their their dissension is uh, attractive. Pe- people falling apart, people unraveling publicly for some reason. Well, it reason. becomes a spectacle. Certainly, I, do you do you get do, do you know people who get happy about it? I mean, if the person is has the person has done evil things, really bad mm-hmm. things, I can understand. Uh, having a little cheer about them being caught. But if somebody is just as, you know, uh, can't help being a shoplifter or something, mm. that's just a sad thing. I don't, I don't know if people are happy about it. But they do spend a lot of time reading about it and watching television about it. I think maybe not happy about it. I, I think there is a, a level of discourse. There's an amount of discussion where they seem to have removed, and this is a little bit at the heart of some of your ideology that I've I've read and, and been listening to, they seem to have removed the human being that they're talking about, and it is just a name, it is just a face. Well, it, it it's a little bit unavoidable. the The problem of fame has been thought about and dealt with since the Greeks, the ancient Greeks. Somebody then said, fame is very easy to pick up and very hard to put down. On the one hand, it can be intoxicating, and on the other hand, it can be a burden. Mm. Part of the problem is you don't, you're not regarded as a person after a while. If, you're, if you become in some way iconic, you're a, more like a cartoon character or a famous building. You're not a person. You're not. I mean, more than one person, including me, has been seen in a a, a grocery store carrying a supersized pack of toilet paper <laughs> to the checkout counter, and somebody says, "Don't you have somebody to do that for you?" Well, no. I buy my own toilet paper. I'm a, I'm a person. But th- this is not to blame the people. It, it's it's. We developed as social animals connecting to one another as people. But at a certain point, we developed this other thing that happened in the society where one of us would, or a very few of us, would become famous people. Mm. And we don't know them personally. We only know them through uh, 
the word about them. And that's why you had this kind of sometimes antipathy toward the famous person, because who are they to be famous? And that's true. Who are they to be famous? How does it happen? Sometimes it happens totally by accident. I, I pity people who get famous without being rich because it's, it's costly to be famous. And people who are rich and want to be famous too, I think, are really foolish. But the, the annoyance is funny. There, there's a, a story, about again, about the Greeks. They were voting on the, uh, the person who was going to lead the government. And one one guy said to another, uh, "Don't don't write down the name." They had to write the name of the person they were voting for. He says, "Don't write down the name of uh, Thermopolis the Good." And the other guy said, "Why?" He says, hey, "He's too good." <laughs> he didn't even know anything about him. He just <laughs> he just got annoyed with the name. <laughs> <laughs> you know? In your own life, do you feel regarded as a person? In my own life, yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, people who recognize me are very kind to me. In the beginning, it was difficult because even though I had seen my father become famous, he, was, he, he went from burlesque to nightclubs to being a very famous movie star in the 40s and then a famous Broadway actor in the 50s. And even though I had seen him become famous and saw some of the drawbacks, I wasn't prepared for the kind of celebrity I had when MASH hit and I couldn't go out on the street often without people pulling at me and grabbing me and saying to their friend, hey Fred, look what I got. <laughs> See, there's a real clear sign that they don't think they got a person. <laughs> so they were, people would you know, be interrupting conversations with my children. and Now they're very kind to me so I, I really appreciate that. They're kinder now because you're older? I think they got used to the fact that I exist. Because you can you can be known by a lot of people but not be hot. When I was known by a lot of people and hot, they couldn't they couldn't they didn't know how to react to it. <laughs> I understand. It's 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 very difficult when you see somebody you only know from a screen. I was I was talking, I met on vacation once a six-year-old boy who just kept staring at me for about three minutes. And then finally he said, how did you get out of the TV? <laughs> now, that's a, that's a six-year-old reaction. But the funny thing is we all have a kind of reaction like that. I've had it too. When I met Lee Vullman, the great Swedish actress, I had had a crush on her for years and now here she was standing talking to me in the parking lot of a Chinese restaurant. And I couldn't hear what she was saying. I was dazed because I was overcome by this thing. I'm talking to this famous person. You know, I, I actually, I met her once too, and I had a very similar response. Um, take me to um, Manhattan Murder Mystery in 1993. You know, in the 90s, or just looking at your work in the 90s, did it come to a point where you realized you didn't have to work if you didn't want to? Yeah, that went right after MASH. And I turned a lot of stuff down. I still turn a lot of stuff down. It's not um, not on the grand scale that it was then. But I turned down big pictures because I, I just didn't want to be in them. I, had a, I developed early on a standard 
which was that I, I didn't want to spend three months making a movie that I didn't want to actually go see. You know, if everybody had that standard, there'd be very few movies made. <laughs> I was just about to say, I don't think many people have that same standard. But I was lucky. I could afford to do what, what interested me. And as a result, that's partly how my life changed, because what really interested me was to do that television show called Scientific American Frontiers, where I interviewed hundreds of scientists and from that, I became interested, and we, I did that for 11 years, mm. and I became really interested in the idea that maybe we could train scientists to be as eloquent and personal and communicative as they were with me on the show because I had this improvisational approach that we were talking about before. I didn't go in with a list of questions. I just went in with a little general knowledge and a lot of curiosity. Mm. And I, when I finally owned up to my ignorance, when I was made it clear that I really didn't know what they were talking about and I really needed them to help me understand it, that's when they were activated. It was like a trigger, and they became the real them. They weren't lecturing anymore. They weren't the professor. They were trying to get me, Alan, to understand what they were saying. And sometimes I'd grab them by the lapels and shake them. I don't get it. Say it again. Say it a different way. And when I finally understood it, there was a good chance that the audience would understand it. So I thought, why can't we teach scientists improvisation as a, as a starting point? and then teach them ways to organize their, their material, their, their, their ideas, their, the, what they have to say about their work. But based on that, the, the advantage that improv gives you, which is that you make contact with the person you're talking to. That's the, that's the main thing that improv is useful for in communication, is you get accustomed to taking in the other person hearing what they're saying, listening, reading their face, reading their body language. And that's really important if you're trying to get somebody to understand something complicated because if, if you're not aware of what they're going through while you're talking to them, you might as well be talking to a tree. Hmm. So, so we did that, and I started to help start the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. That was nine years ago. And we've, uh, we've taught, as of the moment, we've taught over 12,000 scientists and doctors in five countries. And we're scaling up. We're going to be doing much more. Why do you think you want to make contact with people so passionately? This is an interesting thing. It, it, it may be related in a curious way to the fact that I have strong social anxiety if i'm in a, if i have to go to a cocktail party i dread it for days do you really sometimes i have yeah sometimes i have when people say oh a party i think where can i go where can i where can i go to get away from that i hate parties i finally after doing the science show for 11 years and with all the experience in 
improvising. I finally learned how to make small talk. But what I do when I go to a party is the first person I run into, I start up a conversation with them about anything and just have the fun of having a, an improv conversation with this person I never met before, find out about them, playful with them, have a good time, a half hour goes by, and that's whoever I see first, even if it's a waiter. <laughs> <laughs> the waiters don't seem to mind. What are you anxious about? Well, that I don't know. I think uh, that generally when people are nervous about strangers, it may be because they think something is going to be demanded of them. They're going to have to come up with something that they don't necessarily want to. Mm. I tell you what it may be. I what it may be more than that. I just figured this out a while back. I found out a few years ago that I have face blindness. The technical term is prosopagnosia. There's a little uh, fluke in your brain, and you have trouble recognizing faces. So you and I might have dinner and have a really good conversation for three hours. Mm. And the next day, I, w- I wouldn't recognize you. Ah. I, I, twice, I didn't recognize my own, my own daughter. So I think if you walk into a room and you know some of the people are going to be people you've seen before and expect you to know who they are, and some will be pure strangers, but they all look like strangers— that can make you anxious. And I have a feeling I've been anxious all my life and didn't know that I had face blindness until a little while. I didn't know it existed. Most people don't know it exists. So I say, I'm, if I say oh, they say, we met, we met before we had dinner together or we worked together on that committee. Or I say, I'm really sorry. I have face blindness. They say, oh, yeah, I do too. <laughs> and they, don't, they think it's some kind of excuse. It's, I got face blindness. I got... The fusiform gyrus, or whatever it's called, is screwed up in my head. Mm. That is, um, I'm sorry. This is an unusual interview. I usually don't give my entire medical history. Well, you know, that's actually one of the things we require of people on the show, is that they (laughs) deliver that to us. (laughs) I hope I'll be able to get my driver's license after this. You will, and your passport. Um... Yeah. I, 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 you know, my, my natural gut response to that is I feel bad. I don't, not that I, I'm not, I'm not, oh, I'm not, try, I'm not trying to like pity well, you. Which part do you feel bad about? I feel bad that that is um, part of your moment to moment, day to day interactions with, with other human beings. Well, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because I wouldn't want to leave you or anybody else with that feeling because you should know that part of my, confidence about life is that anything like that that happens to me becomes to me a chance to solve a puzzle, to figure my way out of a maze and I enjoy that it's fun, once in a while it gets frustrating but I cope with it and having a problem to solve is a, it's like a, like when you write something Every everything you write has a writing problem and you don't throw the pen down to say, oh, I have, no, I have no inspiration today. You solve the problem. It's fun. So you don't have to feel sad. Well, in my case, I sort of, 
I, I just sort of keep revising and revising until I'm on the verge of throwing my computer out the window. That's when I print <laughs> or that's when I send. If you can catch it in time. Yeah, well, um, that's good. But that you don't you don't enjoy, you're saying you don't enjoy the process of solving the problem? Oh, that's a good question. Sometimes I don't enjoy it either, but I really I aim toward having fun. We're only here for a short time. If people think it's a long time, it's not very long. And no matter how long you last, the oldest person we know of is 122, was 122. Mm. And I just read an article, or actually just a headline, I don't know what the gist of it is, that they're, they're, they have found some indication that 122 is not the limit. And I know, uh, I, I was told on one of the shows we did by about a dozen people who were experts in longevity that with all kinds of changes that are going to be taking place, artificial organs, better nutrition, gene therapy, computer replacements for parts mm. that will routinely live to 200 or 250. Even when we do, that's not a long time because it's never long enough. The idea that it, you're going to be extinguished when you when you finally realize that that is the most factual part of it's the most factual fact about life, then you you think, well, that wasn't very long. <laughs> you know? It seems like it's going to last forever when you're when you're a kid. But then you start to realize it's not, it's it's shorter. So if it's not going to last that long. I think it would be a good idea to feel good about things as much as you can. Why spend that time in misery or anxiety? So if there's a puzzle to solve, have fun solving it. At your age, I don't know, do you feel okay with the end? Oh, yeah. I, well, I, I don't want it to happen, but I don't, I don't mind it. Things changed radically for me when I almost died in Chile 15 years ago. 2003. Yeah, I was within two years of, uh, I'm sorry, I was within two hours of dying. And I had an emergency operation. And I woke up alive, and it was a really good feeling. But at the same time, I thought, when they put the mask on me and gave me the anesthetic, that could have been it. I could have, been, I could have never have awakened from that. So I had like a, a rehearsal of dying, and I realized I didn't have a moment of thinking, oh, God, what's going to happen? You know, is, is there a heaven? And none, and none of that came to mind. The only thing that came to mind was I want to write a note to my wife to say goodbye, mm. tell her I love her. So the producer of the show wrote down what I said, and then he lost a note. <laughs> so uh, you're kidding. You're you're kidding. Yeah, I would have I would have faced utter disappearance. You, you know? were full of shit. That that <laughs> did not my happen. Last words. Did that really happen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I I didn't have 
I didn't, I didn't worry about dying while I thought I might be dying. And I woke up not worried about dying, but really glad to be alive. So it's possible to have both of those thoughts at once. <sighs> I do everything I can to stay alive and healthy. Mm. But I'm, I, I think I'll be extinguished at one point, and that'll be that. That's the way it works. The real pain is for the people who are left. That's a sad thing. Do you feel satisfied with what you've done in your life? Uh, satisfied is a funny word uh, for what I feel. Some, uh, some of the things I've done, I came pretty close to doing the best I could do. Some, I made a mistake trying to do them and made a mistake in the way I did them. So some things I'm happy about, some things not in terms of artistic things I've done. But What are you talking about? I, I, I just know that there are, there are movies and plays that I've done that I, I, I didn't do a good job in. So I can't say I'm satisfied with it, except I'm satisfied in that once I do something, whether it's good or bad, I let it go. So I'm content. Satisfied means I'm pleased with myself. But I'm content because I'm, I'm always trying to do a better job next time. That's where I put my th thinking. Mm. I really don't look back on the past much. I'm, I'm polite when people want to talk about MASH, but if I could have my way, I wouldn't talk about it at all. <laughs> Alan, can I, can I ask you something that is purely out of genuine curiosity? Yeah. I, I, I don't know you. I mean, you don't know me. We're ostensibly two strangers on the telephone for the last hour <laughs> doing our best to amuse one another. Is, are you going to ask me out? Yeah, actually, could I have your phone number? I'll, I'll write you for a date sometime. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. What's the we're strangers? Yes, and my genuine question is: uh, in this hour, question for question, answer for answer, I've been struck by how goddamn positive you are. So what are you curious about? I'm curious how. How? How do, how do, how do you get to that place in your life? I don't know. I, I have no idea. I, I am pretty positive. It doesn't mean I don't get low and I have been depressed uh, at times, anxious. So those things aren't very positive. But maybe because I know if I'm not positive and work really hard to stay on the on top of things, I'll be under them. Mm. So I have a... You know, I got through those nine years not working as an actor just with blind survival. I just was going to survive. I once was, when I was 12, I was... My, with my parents at a hotel in La Jolla, California. And they were asleep, and I went down to the beach to swim. It was a little cove, and there was nobody there but me. And I didn't know there was... A, I didn't know what an undertow was or a riptide or whatever it was I got caught in. And the 
ocean pulled me out from the shore, and then I was underwater the whole time. Then it would, a wave would pick me up and slam me on the shore. And I thought it was fun. And then it would pull me out again and slam me on the shore. And then I thought, well, okay, this has been fun, but now I'm getting tired. I'm going to get out now. And I couldn't. Every time I tried to get out, the water would pull me back. The ocean would pull me back and slam me hard on the shore. And then I thought, if I don't do something, I'm going to die here. This is going to drown me. And I started digging my fingers into the sand and pulling myself with my fingers up the beach. It took several minutes before the ocean couldn't pull me back in again. Maybe I got something out of that experience, or maybe I had something about me that enabled me to survive that experience and all the ones that come along since then. But that's how I approach it now. I just dig my fingers in and pull myself out of it. Mm. So I hope hope that keeps working. I have uh, a feeling that it will. That would be nice, but you never know what's coming. That's that's I, I I came up with a a way to say that. You, I think you can't fight uncertainty. You uncertainty is going to be your your meal at every meal time and in between. Unwanted snacks of uncertainty. You never know what's going to happen, but all you can do is surf uncertainty, and if surfing it can be. You know, the, the fun of surfing, the, the danger, the pleasure of making it without cracking your head open. You might as well make it a good game because it's going to happen. That's what I think. That's how mostly I get through. Well, that, that's about as much as we can do. Um, Alan Alda, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. So long. Special thanks this week to Gene Chimay and Sarah Hill for helping make this episode possible. Without them, this definitely would not have happened. I also want to thank the folks at Midroll for hosting Alan and this episode of the show. If you want to find out more about Alan Alda and his new podcast, and you definitely do, be sure to visit his website at alanalda.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at alanalda. And uh, we'll include more links and tidbits about Alan on our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. As we enter a hundred more episodes of this podcast, I'm going to need active participation and support from the people that do listen. Um, I'm tired of asking people for help. But look, when you need help, you just got to ask is what I've learned. So I'm asking for it. I don't want to beg. I can't beg. It's not in my spirit to beg. 
But I am asking, um, if you enjoy this show, if you derive any happiness or meaning from this podcast on a weekly basis or every once in a while, I know some episodes are better than others, be sure to tell a friend about it. Maybe tweet about it, Instagram it, Facebook. I'm awful at social media. I don't know what people are on these days, but new listeners really do help make this podcast possible week after week, and it helps us continue doing more and more episodes. Anyway, um, you can find all of our episodes on iTunes. Uh, You can also find all of them on SoundCloud or our website at www.talkeasypod.com slash guests. And um, yes, a review for the show on iTunes never hurts. As always, this show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our new associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the podcast is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart.